Welcome to the WeGo Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads with unique careers and the roads they travel to get there. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Max Russo, class of 2020. Today, we talk to Sophia Bass, class of 2014, conductor, composer, and a 2021 Fulbright Scholar. Sophia will share with us how an electric piano and enchantment for the Lord of the Rings soundtrack and plenty of creative freedom paved the way for her to score music for documentaries and study music in India as a Fulbright Nehru scholar. Joining us today is Sophia Bass from the class of 2014. Sophia, can you tell us what you do? Yes. Hi, Mr. Turnbaugh. I am a composer and conductor. I recently graduated from Oberlin College with my Bachelor of Arts in Ethnomusicology for Music Composition. And I am currently um, at home taking uh, Fulbright studies virtually um, as a result of COVID. Hopefully, I'll be in India within the next couple months. And then after that, grad school in the UK. So yeah, I'm in this interim where I'm not in school. Um, So yeah, just working on my own projects and just, you know, doing things I love. Well, well, that's, there's gonna be so much to unwind with that, with all of that last part of, especially what you're going to be working on in the future. I was wondering if you could start us off with, um, how did you come to make music the focus of your study and uh, your pursuit as a career? That's a great question. Um, I actually uh, began my musical journey when I was 12 years old. Um, my, uh, relative gifted us with a keyboard and I essentially taught myself how to play, you know, I never saw myself in, you know, the music field prior to that. So when I saw the keyboard, you know, as a kid, I'm tinkering around with it and I grew to love it so much that I pursued it throughout high school, doing a lot of self-study. And my formal lessons in music actually began in 2015 when I was a freshman at Oberlin College. And that was the focus of my undergraduate degree. How did you uh, choose Oberlin as the college that you wanted to attend? Well, that one actually came through, you know, word of mouth. Um, A friend just happened to hear that I was applying to school and she said, oh, have you thought of Oberlin? And I was like, no, I haven't. So I just Googled Oberlin and, you know, I liked um, what the website had to say. I liked that it was a conservatory paired with a liberal arts college experience. And so I applied and I got in and, you know, that's that. How, so how quickly did you know that this was going to be what you wanted to do once you were at Oberlin? So you said because you were there, like, did you go into it with kind of a, uh, like, yeah, music is what I'm going to do? Or how, how quickly did that narrow once you arrived at Oberlin? It was pretty solidified by the time I had gotten to Oberlin. I knew that I wanted to be a film composer specifically um, by the time I was 13. So very early on, I knew what I wanted to do, and it was just one of those passions that stuck. Um, So entering into Oberlin, it isn't um, a film school, so there was no film music program. So I studied composition with the end goal being a career in film scoring. Do you remember what films early on were the ones that really thought like, oh, I want to to make the composition for films? Which ones really kind of activated your imagination? 
Absolutely. I'm so glad you asked this question. <laughs> um, it was the Lord of the Rings, Howard Shore's score for the Lord of the Rings trilogy that moved me, you know, from the very first time that I saw it as a kid. And it still moves me to this day. I remember specifically, it was the end of the Fellowship of the Ring. Howard Shore wrote this beautiful ending piece titled The Breaking of the Fellowship. And, you know, that it was that piece specifically that made me realize I want to be a film composer. I want to be a musical storyteller and, you know, write music for motion picture because it's such a powerful medium and it just has the power to transport people from this world into another. And so it's just stuck ever since. It has, you know, a very special place in my heart, that piece. That's got to be such a, a fascinating process of operating on the initial stimulus of visually seeing the creation of the director and the actors and how they have created this, the visual of that. How, how, how then is the next part of the process of you as a composer of film music? What's that whole process like of how you then go about kind of teasing out threads of ideas to, uh, to ultimately make that, that, the composition that you want. Yeah, it's it's a tricky process, you know, because um, it all boils down to what story is being told and how can I, as a composer, best tell that story through music. And that's where collaboration with the director and the producer, sound designers, it all becomes crucial because um, each department brings different perspectives on the story. And so for me, when I approach a film... My first thought is, okay, well, what is the story? And what is the best way in which I can communicate that through music? And it's tricky because as a composer, the composer brings their interpretation of the story because I'm either given a script or I'm given raw footage. And, you know, I have to pay attention to my emotional responses, how I'm reacting to dialogue, how I'm reacting to imagery, how I'm reacting to subtext. And so I'm bringing my own personal interpretation of the story to the table while at the same time having to stay within the parameters of the story that the screenwriter or the director put to screen. So it's this, it's this interesting balance between exploring uh, the bounds of storytelling creatively while also um, staying true to the story and staying within those parameters. So you have this freedom within limitation, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. So you were able to use, uh, so the first project that you worked on was for uh, the, um, uh, a, a documentary uh, that you, it was, it, it was uh, Bring It Home and maybe mm -hmm. some other ones. Can you describe like how you came to be connected with that project and what that whole uh, process was like? Yeah, absolutely. It actually came through a referral um, of a colleague of mine at Oberlin. Um, well, she was actually my boss. <laughs> um, she had a friend who is um, a director, Carl Chris, as you saw, and he was looking for a composer. And she, after knowing me for a while and knowing what I do, um, you know, essentially referred my name. And so he and I, we had a meeting. I sent him some of my music. Um, we had a preliminary discussion regarding, you know, story, what he's looking for. Um, and then we talked through, um, you know, my work and my experience. And then he hired me. I came on board and I 
um, recorded the soundtrack. But unfortunately, because of COVID, he had to postpone production. Um, so the documentary um, hasn't yet been completed, which is a shame. Um, but hopefully once COVID lifts, um, he'll be able to resume that work. Sophia, can you tell me what the documentary was about? Yes, absolutely. So the documentary focused on the small town in Ohio um, built around this General Motors factory. And this town, the um, demographic, um, the political demographic was primarily Trump supporters. So um, the story behind the documentary, um, uh, it traces the lives of a few families who lost their jobs due to the closing down of the General Motors factory under the Trump administration. And so you see the struggle that these families are going through, um, having voted for Trump and now having lost their jobs under the Trump administration due to the shutdown of the General Motors factory. And so these families who have lived in this town all of their lives, who have roots there, you know, their grandparents, their great grandparents, um, you know, were born, raised there, um, they would essentially have to leave the town um, as a result of the factory shutdown. And so the sentiment is, where do we go from here? You know, we put our faith in the Trump administration and now we've lost, you know, our only means of income, our only means of a sustainable livelihood. Um, but I actually hadn't had the opportunity to watch the entire documentary because like I had said earlier, uh, Carl Chris, he wasn't able to finish production as a result of COVID-19, but that was the general gist behind his intent in making the documentary. I would imagine that's got to be a, a unique challenge from the from the musical standpoint, which is to kind of pair it with uh, what would be seen as really an incredible generational loss of mm-hmm. uh, of the provincialism of like, look, this is where we're from. These are our fathers. My uncle works at this factory, and now it's been closed. And you know, to the extent that it was really just kind of the economics of production, you know, mm-hmm. whether or not it was which administration. So yeah, what a fascinating, what a, what a unique challenge it'll be to kind of capture that emotional range uh, in your music. So that's yeah. a fun project when you're able to uh, resume that. So because you are both a composer and a conductor, how do you then balance the type of uh, kind of creative process that both of those demand in in the projects that you approach because they're, they're different. Right. And Mm -hmm. and so I I was wondering how you can maybe kind of figure out how to maybe separate and maybe discuss how you're able to kind of approach those two very unique kind of creative um, prospects. Yeah, absolutely. Well, composing um, is very straightforward for me because it's um, a very intuitive process. Um, You know, music just comes to me and I write it down. It's also a very solitary process. Uh, process as well. You know, it's easy to, you know, lock myself in my studio and just write from morning till night. But conducting is a different experience altogether, because now the goal of the conductor is to take what is written by the composer and to bring it to life. It requires, you know, a lot of study And it requires a lot of interpersonal skills because when you're standing in front of an ensemble of, you know, 45 musicians, you have to be able to, you know, communicate your ideas clearly and efficiently. You know, you have to be very confident in your interpretation um, and you have to be able to um, 
rally the musicians into your vision and to into your interpretation of the piece as well. So I find that, you know, when I'm conducting a piece, it's very easy for me to conduct my own work because, you know, it's my work. And so I already know how I want it to sound, what story I'm trying to communicate. But then it gets tricky when I'm conducting the work of another composer because it's easy, um, and this is the tendency for all young conductors as well, you know, starting off early to kind of second guess their interpretation, you know, is thinking, is this what the composer intended? Or is that what the composer intended? You know, if I bring this interpretation, what if the ensemble disagrees? And having the confidence, if the ensemble disagrees, to be able to justify based on the music, why your interpretation is sufficient and why your interpretation is valid. So I would say they're two completely different you know skills altogether but you know I really enjoy both I couldn't live without either one as a conductor how much time did you spend being as a as the musician in the ensemble being conducted yourself so you know that type of arrangement or the ebbs and flows of that kind of relationship how, what was your time like as being someone being conducted uh as opposed to being the conductor that how did how did that experience inform what you do as a conductor? That's actually a very interesting question because I um, I was never actually a part of an ensemble. I was yeah, never... I was wondering about that because that, yeah. that is that more is that more freeing in some ways? I mean I'm wondering if that's to your benefit. That's a good question. You know, I feel like I would have to experience both worlds to be able to <laughs> really say whether or not it's to my benefit. Um, yeah, I think I made up for not being in an ensemble by attending almost every ensemble rehearsal that I could while I was at Oberlin. Uh, it's a benefit for conductors, actually, to also be instrumentalists and to be musicians in an ensemble because, uh, like you said, being under the baton kind of informs how you are on the podium. Yes. Um, and so with me not having that experience, um, I attended, you know, orchestra rehearsals um, almost every day during my free time at Oberlin in between classes. I would get the scores to the music that the ensembles were performing from the conservatory library. And I would debrief with the conductors afterwards, essentially just asking them about, you know, their process, some of the technical some of the technicalities in the rehearsals. And I did a lot of outside study. So in that way, I kind of made up for not being a musician in the ensemble by essentially observing and listening. So if I could go back to then the act of you kind of finding that creative nook where you are composing and all of that, that's not a very easy thing to do because you have to kind of shut off all of the distractions and really find that kind of creative space. You know, I always, you know, work with my, my students. I don't know if you remember us talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and like, oh. <laughs> you, you have to climb that, that particular ladder to be at that fifth stage of self-actualization mm -hmm. for you to create this art and music. How do you 
how do you maintain the discipline to find it? Cause it seems like almost a contradiction of terms, right? Like you have to be disciplined to do this thing that is ultimately very creative. Right. So mm-hmm. I was wondering how, if you could describe like the act of creation for you when you, it, is there a habit that you have or how is it that you find the music? How does it come to you in that kind of act of creation? That's a good question. Sometimes it'll just, it'll find me when I'm not even at the keyboard or I'm not even in my studio. I'll be going for a walk and then a tune will come into my mind or I'll be around my house and suddenly I'm like tapping out a rhythm on a bowl in the kitchen, you know, and then that, you know, eventually develops into something. Um, But you know what they say? They say a great composer isn't determined. how did they say it? They said, a great composer is not one who gets great ideas. A great composer is the one who is able to develop those ideas in a unique way. So it's not just enough that the ideas come to you. Um, a great composer should be able to develop it into in a unique way. And so for me, when it comes to maintaining discipline, I'll say there's a lot of gritty work that is involved in composing. But going back to my early stages in music, I really developed the love for it before I entered into any kind of formal training. So I was able to cultivate that love without, you know, the fear or the stress of, you know, a teacher looking over my shoulder, fixing every little mistake that I was making, um, uh, emphasizing technique and preparing me for an end of the semester recital. Um, My parents, they just let me have fun with music. And in so doing, I cultivated this natural love that over time grew so much that that love and that passion sustained me through all of the grit work and enabled me to be disciplined because I had that foundation of love for music. Um, So yeah, there are times when I'm doing my own personal projects and I'm more free flowing with my creative process. I don't rush things. Sometimes I'll step away from my keyboard, go for a walk, um, look out a window and just think, read a book. I'll do, you know, quiet things throughout the day and then the music will naturally come. So that's one way. But then when I'm crunched for time on a film, like if I'm given a script and they say, okay, well, can you have this uh, cue ready within the next two, three weeks? You know, I'm pulling all nighters, you know, and I'm at my keyboard crunching away, you know, um, trying tunes, reading scripts, the script over and over again, watching the footage over and over again. And sometimes the music doesn't come, but I just have this confidence that the music will come because music and film scoring is something that I know that I was born to do. So I know that I will always meet a deadline regardless of how long it takes for a musical idea to come. But yeah, so I think depending on uh, the project at hand, then my creative process will vary. And it's still ambiguous to me. It's something I'm still trying to figure out. Because like I said earlier too, you know, a lot of my composing is very intuitive. So being able to articulate technically, um, like the technicality of my process is something, it's an ongoing journey for me. You were a researcher in ethnomusicology. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you can maybe describe what your what that is and what is your research into that and what does that show? Yeah, ethnomusicology is essentially the study of music from different cultures um, beyond the West. Um, So for me, um, I've always had a passion for music of the Afro-Asiatic region and the Caribbean and South America. Um, (laughs) It's a lot. But um, at Oberlin, um, the curriculum was fairly limited 
in the ethnomusicology department. Um, my advisor, she's an, she's an ethnomusicologist and she studies Indonesian gamelan. And during my time at Oberlin, there was one other professor there um, who was an ethnomusicologist and she studied, she specialized in uh, African-American music. And so as a student researcher, I essentially was part of a student research group in which we researched uh, an African-American composer. Her name is Shirley Graham Du Bois. She was born in 1896, died in 1977, and she was a composer, a playwright, author, musicologist, theater director, you know, conductor, you name it. Um, she essentially did everything. And in 1931, she attended my alma mater and she wrote a master's thesis on Africanisms in modern music. And she also wrote um, an opera, um, an epic of Tom Tom and the Negro. And it was staged during her time at Oberlin and it was premiered in Cleveland over two nights, attracting an audience of you know 25,000, which was huge during that time in 1932. Um, and I essentially was tasked with researching, um, an aspect of her life as part of a larger body of work in an attempt to, you know, unearth this hidden legacy, which was Shirley Graham Du Bois, because it's believed that she is the first African-American woman to have a major opera produced by a major opera company. And so she attended Oberlin College, and I essentially did research on her work um, as a theater director when she was here in Chicago um, under the Federal Theater Project. And yeah, it was it was a great experience. I had the opportunity to speak at in you know the end of the year symposium. Um, yeah. Uh, what was it difficult to find uh, her like primary sources for her work, or was it was it very well documented with her work uh, when she when when the uh, opera opened? It was actually really difficult. Um, she was a very private woman, a very mysterious woman. Um, Harvard actually has a lot of her, you know, personal letters um, or letters that people had sent to her um, along with, um, you know, some program notes, some scores in their archives. And so we were able to gain access to those. And so we scoured them. Um, but, you know, missing, um, you know, a lot of significant pieces for our research um, was definitely um, a challenge for me, you know, trying to find program notes or trying to find, um, you know, uh, just, um, what's the word, trying to find um, analyses on her work from critics. Um, it was very, it was very challenging. And so I found that a lot of my work um, didn't end in a lot of conclusions, but, you know, you just create um, hypotheses. Um, based off of, you know, the research that you've done on her. Um, so, yeah, I would say that it was actually very challenging. Well, it sounds really, I, I, I could imagine how difficult it would be. I mean, just any any type of like that that level of research is just, uh, but it, it probably just sharpens your blade for so many other new challenges when you do have to do that. Absolutely. Also, so your, your, you, you spoke to your uh, preferred kind of ethnomusicology and in uh, the research that you did with that. I was wondering if, if like how you might 
as a as an expert on on you know maybe like canon uh, music in such a way, which is that it seems like so much of the and this is just for me, like the lay person that would look at the canon, which is in classical music, it seems like things are kind of frozen, which would be like Mozart or Bach, you know, Tchaikovsky and Mahler or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say, like, how do you predict like a future, like within, let's say a hundred years, are there any like modern geniuses that you would say like that we haven't heard of yet that will get their time i mean or are will there always be this kind of frozen kind of perception of like what only classical music can be at least as it approaches the masses if that makes sense yeah that's a great question you know and you know i would hope that there's room for modern geniuses to you know make it to the stage i hope that i would be able to make it to the stage you know in light of you know mahler and mozart beethoven bach um But I think, yeah, it is definitely an issue that, at least in the West, Western classical music does seem to be frozen in time. Um, And I wonder if that's this a result of this idea that, you know, um, from, you know, 17th, 18th, 19th, and even um, early 20th century, that essentially forms the pinnacle of Western, um, Western classical music, like the height of, you know, musical genius um, to a lot of, you know, Western classical purists, I would say. And, you know, that has been an issue for me, which is why I've, you know, always been determined to set my sights beyond the West, looking to the music of the Asian continent, the African continent, because there's just a wealth of, you know, musical culture, musical stories and heritages that, you know, are ancient, thousands of years old that haven't, you know, nearly been tapped by Western composers as, you know, um, the music of, um, uh, yeah, Western composers. So um, I've always known that that was an issue. So for me, being able to step out of that framework and to explore new ones has always been a passion of mine. And I love how you said it because it does come at the detriment of saying, well, we can only look to this one place to find genius. But those are, you know, Western men of, a hundred, you know, how many hundreds of years ago, which doesn't look to include the, the variety of ethnic and racial and, and gendered voices and, and compositions as well mm-hmm. um, that are going to be that would approach every bit of genius, you know, as that you said. So that was absolutely that was- you know, you started off at the very beginning of this that you are currently a Fulbright Nehru scholar. And uh, so what is your research and what is it like, you know, doing the type of coursework now? I mean, obviously it's got to be um, clearly difficult um, mm-hmm. uh, in what you're doing now, but you are going to be able to travel to India, you said, hopefully within the next uh, few months. Uh, what's what's that whole process like? And how did you come to become a Fulbright uh, scholar? And then uh, what has your coursework been like? And then uh, what will it be like once you get to India? Yeah, great question. So I'll start with how I um, got the Fulbright scholarship. I, my junior year, I had taken a class, um, internalizing rhythms, taught by um, he's an American percussionist, Jamie Haddad, and um, his curriculum was framed around this South Indian rhythmic system called konakol, and konakol is essentially the art of speaking the rhythm before you play it, because in Indian musical philosophy. 
They believe that if you can ultimately internalize the music, speaking it, singing it, then you'll be able to play it. You'll be able to externalize it. You can only externalize what you've internalized. And so um, that was my first exposure to um, any kind of Indian musical system. And I, at the same time, I had taken a class taught by my advisor, Analysis of World Music. And during that time, she had invited this um, famous um, sitar player, Pandit uh, Rajiv Taranath, to come and perform. And accompanied with him was Pandit Uderaj Karpur. And Pandit Uderaj Karpur, he is a famous tabla player. And they did a demonstration in uh, my class. And then later that evening, they had a performance. And I attended the performance. And Mr. Turnbaugh, I was blown away, you know, um, mainly with Pandit Uderaj Karpur, because I've always had an affinity, an affinity for, you know, rhythm and percussion. And so as a tabla player, tabla is a North Indian drum. It's a two-headed drum played with, you know, hands and the fingers. It's a hand percussion instrument. And so I was so moved by his performance that I bought a couple of his DVDs after, after the concert. And I talked with him and I asked him if I could stay in contact because he just, he was very inspiring. And so I got his contact information and I stayed in touch with him ever since. Then moving into my senior year at Oberlin, I knew that I didn't want to attend grad school immediately because like I said, my ethnomusicology background informs my creative work. So I wanted to take at least a year of traveling and, you know, exploring the music of another culture before really specializing in graduate school. And so I, it was, it was a no brainer for me. I was like, I want to study in India and I would like to study with Bandit Uderaj Karpur just to study, um, North Indian classical music, the mathematical systems, um, of ragas, which are, um, melodic frameworks in Indian classical music and tala systems, which are rhythmic frameworks. And so I got in touch with him. He happily agreed to be, um, you know, my Fulbright teacher. And he also put me in touch with um, a famous Carnatic violinist and composer. His name is Dr. Mysore Manjunath. And he specializes in South Indian music or Carnatic music. And so under their combined tutelage, I'll be studying both North and South Indian classical traditions. Um, and I'm currently studying um, with Bandit Udiraj Karpur uh, virtually as a result of COVID. My Fulbright, it's been delayed um, until August 15th. And um, it's yet to be confirmed this month whether or not I will officially be going to India. But yes, I've been studying tabla performance and just the history and philosophy of Hindustani classical music um, with him. But then when I go to India, I will continue my studies with him and then begin my new studies with Dr. Mysore Manjunath. I love the, the, the intentionality of knowing that you're going to blend both regions uh, and, and study under, underneath them. That's just going to be so exciting. Now, where will you be staying in India when you're studying? I will be in Karnataka, India, and um, I'm most likely going to be in Bangalore. The idea that there's so much math involved in that, was that something that had been your experience always uh, in the way in which those rhythms, because you had mentioned math in the the the, the the Indian instruments that you'll be studying underneath. Has, has that always been part of the understanding of, of how you've approached uh, the instruments before, or is that something that is unique to these types of instruments? 
Um, I think it's uh, math is definitely, you know, a thing for any kind of rhythmic instrument. Um, for me, um, yeah, it's it's very much more to the forefront of my mind when I'm studying within the Indian mathematical system, only because it's one of the most complex in the world. Um, so unlike, you know, conga or other Latin American percussion, um, I find that this has challenged me to a greater extent than, you know, my studies in Latin American music, um, mainly because, like I said before, it's a very complex uh, rhythmic system. And, uh, yeah, I think... It, it seems like it's, like, it's uh, creating, like, a fist fight between the left and right part of your brain, which is, like, I want to I feel, you know, the music, and the other one's like, no, we need to kind of, like, and, and both of those things are clashing against each other. Am I, am I wrong in, in that metaphor, or does that seem like, is, is that uh, close to what's happening? Yeah, you're absolutely right, you know, um, and what my teacher, he says, he says, you know, it's, um, oral recitation, and then you just practice over and over and over again until it becomes intuitive. And that's the goal to internalize it so much that it just, be, you get the mathematic, you get the mathematical structure on a subliminal level so that you can express yourself. Because one thing that I didn't mention is that um, uh, Indian classical music is highly improvisatory. So there it's very rare that you'll find a fixed composition. You might find more in South Indian music, but less so in North Indian, especially in tabla performance. Um, essentially, the art of composing involves writing a rhythmic framework or a melodic framework within which the musician will improvise. So in Indian classical music, for the most part, the musician is just as much the composer as the composer themselves. <laughs> That's 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 got to be a really a, a rich performative uh, experience for sure. Absolutely. How cool is that? The other thing that I I saw that that you were recently asked to write a song for an Israeli cellist. Uh, mm -hmm. Her name is Inval Segev, if I'm saying mm -hmm. it correctly. Um, now, is you know how do you, do do you approach writing a song is because as far as from what you've said so far a cello is not your first instrument mm -hmm. so how do you write a song or arrange a song for something that's not maybe is your in your default instrument of choice of how you imagine or am i is the process of composing not just that instrument but so much more like how, how did you how do you go about the challenge of being commissioned to write a song for that what, what was that process like yeah, I think um, the thing about being a composer is that you essentially have to know how to write for any instrument you want to write for, you know, so you have to know, um, you have to know basic techniques that the musician themselves know, um, so that you can write something that is readable and performable. So when I'm commissioned to write a work, if it's for an instrument that I'm not familiar writing for, then I essentially learn on the go, you know, um, and it's a trial by error. Um, and I'll also, you know, send rough drafts to the musician, say, Hey, look over this, you know, is this performable? How does the fingering work for this? And if they say, Oh, here, tweak this, tweak that, you know, it's, it's a collaborative, a collaborative effort. Um, so when in Balsagav, she had asked me to write a cello piece, um, she had wanted something different for her album because I'm one of 20 composers commissioned to write a piece. And so I inquired into the instrumentation. 
um, just across the album. And she said that there was a lot of piano and cello, a lot of pieces written for piano and cello and, you know, string quartet. So she would like something different. And she had heard, you know, we talked a little bit and she heard about my studies um, under, you know, these teachers in India. And she thought it might be a good idea to, you know, write something with, you know, an Indian background. And so I essentially went about writing and, um, you know, I was in the middle of writing when um, my father, he passed away this past October 1st. And so I, I had to step away from the composition because I was unable to write. Um, and so I say that in response to your question, you know, how, how do I approach a song um, and how do I know essentially what to write? You know, I write from my own experience. And so um, my, you know, my life informs my work. And so um, I essentially wrote the piece in honor of my father. Um, and even incorporated a musical theme from one of the songs from a song that he had written many years ago. And, um, you know, she loved it. Um, it is based off of the traditional North Indian tabla solo. Um, but there's a lot of call and response between the tabla artist and the cellist. And you have a lot of traditional, um, not a lot, I would say, because they're only, uh, it's a three person ensemble. So between the tabla and the tanpura, um, you have uh, traditional Indian instruments interwoven into the piece, and also the style with which I wrote um, the cello part um, is very reminiscent of the traditional Indian raga. Um, so in that way, I was in, able to incorporate, you know, my experience with um, under my teachers uh, in India, along with you know my experience with losing my father into the music, and even that I think when I speak from. When my music speaks from my own experience, that is what gives me confidence in being able to share that music with the world because I know it's my story. And what a a gift it will be that this song composed will be in essence also a a memory of your father because that's mm-hmm. what was part of the muse of that. So that's mm-hmm. beautiful. Um, so when so when you're done with the fulbright uh you're also going to then be living abroad again heading off to uh, uh the university of london uh can you describe what uh, you're going to be finishing up when or what you're starting and going to finish when you get there yeah so uh once i finish my fulbright i will be back in the us for a couple months before i head off to london to begin my masters at the royal college of music Um, and I will be getting my degree in composition for screen. Um, So the ultimate goal is to really kickstart my uh, professional career uh, in uh, film scoring. Um, I have a few mentors um, in California who um, I would be interested in potentially interning with upon graduating. But yeah, uh, graduate school is meant to really um, hone my skills and apply it specifically to motion picture, um, as a way to really jumpstart my experience in the um, Hollywood or even the UK film industry. When you head off into the next part of your learning at uh, University of London, I mean, how much will be maybe dealing with software versus, you know, more time with actual musicians and, and all that? Like, what will be, uh, what will be the, the new challenge uh, at, at the grad level for that? Oh, yeah. At the grad level, at that point, you're no longer essentially in the classroom. Um, 
it is highly uh, technology based um, because you know in Hollywood and in the UK there's they're using a lot of music software to you know record mix master and produce um, you know like these big cinematic scores so yeah there is that technological component there's a lot of um, independent projects a lot of ensemble work um, I I was actually speaking with one of the professors at the RCM and he had said you know if you if a student comes into this program and does everything that um, essentially does everything that is required to graduate that's not enough you know they essentially have to be spearheading their own projects collaborating with other musicians other composers to get the most of it so it's um it's a self-driven program um, which involves a lot of, you know, collaboration. There are also London-based film schools um, that we are able to collaborate with. You know, you have um, guest lecturers. I know Howard Shore had come at one point. Hans Zimmer had visited at another point. So being able to just, you know, even meet, you know, big composers like that and being able to just, you know, pick their brain about, um, you know, their creative process, what inspires them, just having that one-to-one -one interaction in addition to um, just the other independent workshops and projects and, you know, um, oh, recording sessions are a huge thing as well, you know. Um, a lot of real-time simulation, um, the RCM, it simulates the professional uh, film industry. And so you're on deadlines you essentially have to come up with your own budgets. You essentially have to um, rally your own team to, you know, uh, make projects meet a certain deadline. So it's very intense, very um, high adrenaline um, for two years. But um, yeah, not a lot of classroom work. That that your that last part you just said is fat because that that's exactly the what I was wondering is like because studio time is is money. And mm -hmm. like, you, you just, you can't just say like, well, we'll get around to it. Like, Oh no, you have to turn that around very quickly. But the more pressure you put on the act of creation, especially in music may actually kind of be detrimental to the overall process of, uh, of creation. So that's the, that's kind of like the, the, uh, the irony, right. Where these two have to kind of coexist, uh, with each other. So mm -hmm. that's so cool. So, Sophia, you've been so generous. This has been so fascinating. I love all these questions. This has been great. I was wondering if you could leave uh, current Wildcats with some tips for success. Hmm. You know, for me, um, one thing that my parents always said is, and it was a quote by Maya Angelou, actually, you know, find that which you love to do and do it so well that the world can't take their eyes off you. and my parents never, you know, they never encouraged my siblings and I to settle for a J-O-B, for a nine to five, because they said, you know, a nine to five is what actually kills your dreams. Um, so they had given me the freedom to explore music. And it began with, you know, a tiny keyboard in the corner of my dining room. But then now here I am. And I know that I am compelled to be a composer. And so... I see myself doing it for the rest of my life. And so I would say for you, find that which it, it's the first thing on your mind when you wake up in the morning. When you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing on your mind? What could you do for the rest of your life for free? Find what you want to do and then do it for the rest of your life. That's what I would say. Ah, that's perfect. 
Sophia, thank you so much. This has been so, so interesting. I've learned a ton and I'm so excited for all the new work that you're going to be giving the gift of your talents to the world and all those compositions that we'll, we have yet to uh, see. So this is going to be so great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mr. Turnbaugh. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Episode page will include a link to Sophia's professional webpage, which is sophiajbass.com. You can follow We Go Places on iTunes and Google Podcasts. Just search We Go Vox, that's We Go, V-O-X, or search on Facebook for We Go Places Podcast.